section eleven of little journeys to the homes of great scientists this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. little journeys to the homes of great scientists by albert hubbard chapter eleven part one of charles darwin Evolution is at work everywhere even in the matter of jokes Once in the House of Commons Benjamin Disraeli who prided himself on his fine scholarship as well as on his Hyperion curl Interrupted a speaker and corrected him on a matter of history. I Would rather be a gentleman than a scholar the man replied my friend is seldom either came the quick response when Thomas Brackett Reed was Speaker of the House of Representatives, a member once took exception to a ruling of the Tsar, and having in mind Reed's supposed presidential aspirations, closed his protests with a thrust. I would rather be right than president. The gentleman will never be either, came the instant retort. But some years before the reign of the American Tsar, Gladstone, Premier of England, said, I would rather be right and believe in the Bible than excite a body of curious infidelic so-called scientists to unbecoming wonder by tracing their ancestry to a troglodyte and Huxley replied I too would rather be right I would rather be right than premier Charles Darwin was a gentle man he was the greatest naturalist of his time and the more perfect gentleman never lived his son Francis said I cannot remember ever hearing my father utter an unkind or hasty word If in his presence someone was being harshly criticized He always thought of something to say in a way of palliation and excuse One of his companions on the Beagle who saw him daily for five years on that memorable trip wrote a protracted sea voyage is a most severe test of friendship and Darwin was the only man on our ship or that I ever heard of who stood the ordeal He never lost his temper or made an unkind remark Captain Fitzroy of the Beagle was a disciplinarian and Absolute in his authority as a sea captain must be The ship had just left one of the South American ports where the captain had gone ashore and been entertained by a coffee planter on this plantation all the work was done by slaves who no doubt were very well treated the captain thought that negroes well cared for were very much better off than if free and further he related how the owner had called up various slaves and had the captain ask them if they wished their freedom the answer was always no darwin interposed by asking the captain what he thought the answer of a slave was worth when being interrogated in the presence of his owner here Fitzroy flew into a passion berating the volunteer naturalist and suggested a taste of the rope's end in lieu of logic Young Darwin made no reply and seemingly did not hear the uncalled-for chidings in a few hours a sailor handed him a note from Captain Fitzroy full of abject apology for having so forgotten himself Darwin was then but 22 years old but the poise and patience of the young man won the respect and then the admiration and finally the affection of every man on board that ship this attitude of kindness patience and goodwill formed the strongest attribute of Darwin's nature 
and to these godlike qualities he was heir from a royal line of ancestry no man was ever more blessed more richly endowed by his parents with love and intellect than darwin and no man ever repaid the debt of love more fully all that he had received he gave again darwin is the saint of science he proves the possible and when mankind shall have evolved to a point where such men will be the rule not the exception as one in a million then and not until then can we say we are a civilized people charles darwin was not only the greatest thinker of his time with possibly one exception but in his simplicity and earnestness in his limpid love for truth his perfect willingness to abandon his opinion if he were found to be wrong in all of these things he proved himself the greatest man of his time and yet it is absurd to try to separate the scientist from the father neighbor and friend darwin's love for truth as a scientist was what lifted him out of a fog of whim and prejudice and set him apart as a man he had no time to hate he had no time to indulge in foolish debates and struggle for rhetorical mastery he had his work to do that statesmen like gladstone misquoted him and churchmen like wilberforce reviled him these things were as naught to darwin his face was toward the sun rising to be able to know the truth and to state it were vital issues and whether the truth was accepted by this man or that was quite immaterial except possibly to that man himself there was no resentment in darwin's nature only love is immortal hate is a negative condition it is love that animates beautifies benefits refines creates so firmly was this truth fixed in the heart of darwin that throughout his long life the only things he feared and shunned were hate and prejudice they hinder and blind a man to truth he said a scientist must only love emerson had been called the culminating flower of seven generations of new england culture charles darwin seems a similar culminating product surely he showed rare judgment in the selection of his grandparents his grandfather on his father's side was dr erasmus darwin a poet a naturalist and a physician so discerning that he once wrote the science of medicine will sometime resolve itself into a science of prevention rather than a matter of cure man was made to be well and the best medicine i know of is an active and intelligent interest in the world of nature erasmus darwin had the felicity to have his biography written in german and he also had his place in the encyclopedia britannica quite independent of that of his gifted grandson charles darwin's grandfather on his mother's side was josiah wedgwood one of the most versatile of men he was as fine in spirit as those exquisite designs by flaxman that you will see today on the wedgwood pottery josiah wedgwood was a businessman an organizer and he was beyond this an artist a naturalist a sociologist and a lover of his race his portrait by sir joshua reynolds reveals a man of rare intelligence and his biography is as interesting as a novel by kipling his space in the encyclopedia britannica is even more important 
than that occupied by his dear friend and neighbor dr erasmus darwin the hand of the potter did not shake when josiah wedgwood was made josiah wedgwood and dr darwin had mutually promised their children in marriage wedgwood became rich and he made numerous other men rich and he enriched the heart and the intellect of england by setting before it beautiful things and by living an earnest active and beautiful life josiah wedgwood coined the word queensware he married his cousin sarah wedgwood their daughter susanna wedgwood married dr robert darwin and charles darwin their son married emma wedgwood a daughter of josiah wedgwood the second Caroline Darwin, a sister of Charles Darwin, married Josiah Wedgwood III. Let those who have the time work out this origin of species in detail and show us the relationship of the Darwins and Wedgwoods, and I hope we'll hear no more about the folly of cousins marrying when Charles Darwin is before us as an example of natural selection. From his mother, Darwin inherited those traits of gentleness, insight, purity of purpose, patience and persistency that set him apart as a marked man the father of charles darwin dr robert darwin was a most successful physician of shrewsbury his marriage to susanna wedgwood filled his heart and also placed him on a firm financial footing and he seemed to take his choice of patience dr darwin was a man devoted to his family respected by his neighbors and he lived long enough to see his son recognized greatly to his surprise as one of england's foremost scientists charles darwin in youth was rather slow in intellect and in form and feature far from handsome physically he was never strong in disposition he was gentle and most lovable his mother died when he was eight years of age and his three older sisters then mothered him between them all existed a tie of affection very gentle and very firm the girls knew that charles would become an eminent man just how they could not guess but he would be a leader of men they felt it in their hearts it was all the beautiful dream that the mother has for her babe as she sings to the man-child a lullaby as the sun goes down in his autobiographical sketch written when he was past sixty darwin mentions this faith and love of his sisters and says personally i never had much ambition but when at college i felt that i must work if for no other reason so as not to disappoint my sisters at school charles was considerable of a grubber he worked hard because he felt that it was his duty english boarding schools have always taught things out of season and very often have succeeded in making learning wholly repugnant perhaps that is the reason why nine men out of ten who go to college cease all study as soon as they stand on the threshold looking at life ere they seize it by the tail and snap its head off to them education is one thing and life is another but with many headaches and many heartaches charles got through cambridge and then was sent to attend lectures at the university of edinburgh of one lecturer in scotland he says the good man was really more dull than his books and how i escaped without all science being utterly distasteful to me i hardly know to cambridge darwin owed nothing but the association with other minds and yet this was much and almost justifies the college 
Send your sons to college, and the boys will educate them, said Emerson. The most beneficent influence for Darwin at Cambridge was the friendship between himself and Professor Henslow. Darwin became known as the man who walks with Henslow. The professor taught botany and took his classes on tramps afield and on barge rides down the river, giving out-of-door lectures on the way. And this common-sense way of teaching appealed to Darwin greatly. And although he did not at Cambridge take up botany as a study, yet when Henslow had an out-of-door class, he usually managed to go along. In his autobiography, Darwin gives great credit to this very gentle and simple soul, who, although not being great as a thinker, yet could animate and arouse a pleasurable interest. Henslow was once admonished by the faculty for his lack of discipline, and young Darwin came near getting himself into difficulty by declaring, Professor Henslow teaches his pupils in love. The others think they know a better way. The hope of his father and sisters was that Charles Darwin would become a clergyman. For the army he had no taste whatsoever, and at twenty-one the only thing seemed to be the church. Not that the young man was filled with religious zeal, far from that. But one must, you know, do something. Up to this time he had studied in a desultory way. He had also dreamed and tramped the fields. He had done considerable grouse shooting, and had developed a little too much skill in that particular line. To paraphrase Herbert Spencer, to shoot fairly well is a manly accomplishment, but to shoot too well is evidence of an ill-spent youth. Dr. Darwin was having fears that his son was going to be an idle sportsman, and he was urging the divinity school. The real fact was that sportsmanship was already becoming distasteful to young Darwin, and his hunting expeditions were now largely carried on with a botanist's drum and a geologist's hammer. But to the practical doctor, these things were no better than the gun. It was idling anyway. Natural history as a pastime was excellent, and sportsmanship for exercise and recreation had its place. But the business of life must not be neglected. Charles should get himself to a divinity school, and quickly too. Things urged become repellent, and Charles was groping around for an excuse when a letter came from Professor Henslow, saying, among other things, that the government was about to send a ship around the world on a scientific surveying tour, especially to map the coast of Patagonia and other parts of South America and Australia. A volunteer naturalist was wanted, board and passage free, but the volunteer was to supply his own clothes and instruments. The proposition gave Charles a great thrill. He gave a gulp and a gasp, and went in search of his father. The father saw nothing in the plan beyond the fact that the government was going to get several years' work out of some foolish young man for nothing. Gad zooks! Charles insisted he wanted to go. He urged that on this trip he would be to but very little expense. You say I have cost you much, but the fellow who can spend money on board ship must be very clever. But you are a very clever young man, they say, the father replied. That night Charles again insisted on discussing the matter. The father was exasperated and exclaimed, Go and find me one sane man who will endorse your wild goose chase, and I will give my consent. Charles said no more. He would find that sane man. 
but he knew perfectly well that if any average person endorsed the plan his father would declare the man was insane and the proof of it lay in the fact that he endorsed the wild goose chase in the morning charles started of his own accord to see henslow henslow would endorse the trip but both parties knew that dr darwin would not accept a mere college professor as sane charles went home and tramped thirty miles across the country to the home of his uncle josiah wedgwood the second and there he knew he had an advocate for anything he might wish in the person of his fair cousin emma these two laid their heads together made a plan and stalked their prey they cornered josiah the second after dinner and showed him how it was the chance of a lifetime this trip on h m s the beagle charles wasn't adapted for a clergyman anyway he wanted to be a ship captain a traveler a discoverer a scientist an author like sir john manville or something else josiah the second had but to speak the word and dr darwin would be silenced and the recommendation of so great a man as josiah wedgwood would secure the place josiah the second laughed then he looked sober he agreed with the proposition it was the chance of a lifetime he would go back home with charles and put the doctor straight and he did and on the personal endorsement of josiah wedgwood and professor henslow charles robert darwin was duly booked as volunteer naturalist in her majesty's service captain fitzroy of the beagle liked charles darwin until he began to look him over with a very professional eye and then he declared his nose was too large and was not rightly shaped besides he was too tall for his weight outside of these points the volunteer would answer on talking with young darwin further the captain liked him better and he waived all imperfections although no promise was made that they would be remedied in fact captain fitzroy liked charles so well that he invited him to share his own cabin and eat with him the sailors on seeing this touched respectful forefingers to their caps and began addressing the volunteer as sir the beagle sailed on december twenty seventh eighteen hundred thirty one and it was fully four years and ten months before charles darwin saw england again the trip decided the business of darwin for the rest of his life and thereby an epoch was worked in the upward and onward march of the race captain fitzroy of the british navy was but twenty-three years old he was a draftsman a geographer a mathematician and a navigator he had sailed around the world as a plain tar and taken his kicks and cuffs with good grace at the portsmouth naval school he had won a gold medal for proficiency in study and another medal had been given him for heroism in leaping from a sailing ship into the sea to save a drowning sailor let us be fair the tight little island has produced men to evolve these few good men she may have produced many millions of the spawn of the earth but let the fact stand england has produced men here was a beardless youth slight in form silent by habit but so well thought of by his government that he was given charge of a ship five officers two surgeons and forty-one picked men to go around the world and make measurements of certain coral reefs and map the dangerous coasts of patagonia and tierra del fuego the ship was provisioned for two years but the orders were do the work no matter how long it may take and your drafts on the government will be honored 
Captain Fitzroy was a man of decision. He knew just where he wanted to go and what there was to do. He was to measure and map dreary wastes of tossing tide, and to do the task so accurately that it would never have to be done again. His maps were to remain forever a solace, a safety and a security to the men who go down to the sea in ships. England had certainly produced men, and Fitzroy was one of them. Fitzroy is now known to us not for his maps, which have passed into the mutual wealth of the world, but because he took on this trip, merely as an afterthought, a volunteer naturalist. Before the Beagle sailed, Captain Fitzroy and young Mr. Darwin went down to Portsmouth, and the captain showed him the ship. The captain took pains to explain the worst. It was to be at least two years of close, unremitting toil. It was no pleasure excursion. There were no amusements provided, no cards, no wine on the table. The fare was to be simple in the extreme. This way of putting the matter was most attractive to Darwin. Fitzroy became a hero in his eyes at once. The captain's manner inspired much confidence. He was a man who did not have to be amused or cajoled. You will be left alone to do your work, said Fitzroy to Darwin, and I must have the cabin to myself when I ask for it. And that settled it. Life aboard ship is like life in jail. It means freedom, freedom from interruption. You have your evenings to yourself and the days as well. Darwin admired every man on board the ship, and most of all, the man who selected them, and so wrote home to his sisters. He admired the men because each was intent on doing his work, and each one seemed to assume that his own particular work was really the most important. Second officer Wickham was entrusted to see that the ship was in good order, and so thorough was he that he once said to Darwin, who was constantly casting his net for specimens, If I were the skipper, I'd soon have you and your beastly belittlement out of this ship with all your devilish damned mess. And Darwin, much amused, wrote this down in his journal and added, Wickham is a most capital fellow. The discipline and system of ship life, the necessity of working in a small space, and of improving the calm weather and seizing every moment when on shore, all tended to work in Darwin's nature exactly the habit that was needed to make him the greatest naturalist of his age. Every sort of life that lived in the sea was new and wonderful to him. Very early on this trip Darwin began to work on the Cirripedia, barnacles, and we hear of Captain Fitzroy obligingly hailing homeward-bound ships and putting out a small boat, rowing alongside, asking politely to the astonishment of the party hailed, Would you oblige us with a few barnacles off the bottom of your ship? All this that the volunteer, who was dubbed the fly-catcher, might have something upon which to work. When on shore, a sailor was detailed by Captain Fitzroy just to attend the fly-catcher, with a bag to carry the specimens, geological, botanical, and zoological, and a cabin-boy was set aside to write notes. This boy, who afterwards became Governor of Queens and a K.C.B., used in after years to boast a bit rightfully of his share in producing the origin of species. When urged to smoke, Darwin replied, I am not making any new necessities for myself. When the weather was rough, the flycatcher was sick, much to the delight of Wickham. But if the ship was becalmed, Darwin came out and gloried in the sunshine and in his work of dissecting, labeling, and writing memoranda and data. 
the sailors might curse the weather he did not and thus passed the days at each stop many specimens were secured and these were to be sorted and sifted out at leisure on shore the captain had his work to do and it was only after a year that darwin accidentally discovered that the sailor who was sent to carry his specimens was always armed with knife and revolver and his orders were not so much to carry what wickham called the damned plunder as to see that no harm befell the flycatcher fitzroy's interest in the scientific work was only general longitude and latitude his twenty-four chronometers his maps and constant soundings with minute records kept his time occupied for darwin and his specimens however he had a constantly growing respect and when the long five-year trip was ended darwin realized that the gruff and grim captain was indeed his friend captain fitzroy had trouble with everybody on board in turn and thus proving his impartiality but when parting was nigh tears came to his eyes as he embraced darwin and said with prophetic yet broken words the beagle's voyage may be remembered more through you than me i hope it will be so and darwin too moved for speech said nothing except through the pressure of his hand End of section 11